Throughout the scripture, there are several images that appear again and again, usually from the beginning to the end of the Bible. These images are things, really, things God created. And because we're around them every day, we miss them. We look right past them. These are things like wind or breath, fire, water, dust, trees, fruit. But when these appear in the scriptures, they take on another dimension. We are not intended to look past them. They're not just props in the story. They're signs of a deeper reality. These are things that God has created. We become so used to, we just look around them. But if we would look through them, Origen said, they are there that we might perceive and understand realities that are hidden in heaven. You couldn't possibly know what was true about heaven unless God put it right in front of you, usually in things you look around. You there? This morning, we've talked in the past about fire and we've talked about wind this morning. I want to look at the theme of tears. I wonder if tears are like a tear in the veil between earth and heaven. And if we would look through our tears, we would see things about heaven that we couldn't imagine were true. But most of the time, we avoid them. The genesis of this message came a few weeks ago when I was sitting in the dark early in the morning. And I began to meditate on the idea of tears. When do they come? Why do they come? What do they mean? After about a half hour to 45 minutes, <laughs> it takes a long time. I'm a slow thinker. I wrote one sentence. In the sacrament of tears is the fellowship of suffering. I had in mind a phrase from Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, where Paul said, I want to know him, meaning Christ. I want to know him in the power of his resurrection. And I want to become like him in the fellowship of his suffering. Only this time when I read it, it occurred to me that Paul did not write that from a desk. He didn't teach it in a class. He wrote it from a prison cell where he was chained to either a wall or to another prisoner. He wrote it in a time of deep distress. That's in Philippians chapter 3. In Philippians chapter 1, he doesn't know whether he wants to live or die. So Paul's state of mind when he wrote that was not one of pontificating. It was one of mourning. I want to 
Know him in the fellowship of his sufferings was not something he was teaching. He was not writing his theology about life or death. It was an emotional pouring out from a prison cell. And when that thought hit me, I began to wonder how many other places in the Bible I had misinterpreted simply because I never noticed the tears. I looked around them. But when I began to look through them, another story, another meaning, a deeper meaning and a richer one began to come more into view. I'll retell the story, that famous story of John 11 in a few moments, and hopefully you will see then how we've misinterpreted one of the deepest parts of that story. First, I just need to clear the air, tell you that the goal here is not to make you cry. People have asked. That would be theater. That would be manipulation. The goal here is, well, to start out with, there is no command in the scripture that you should cry. The scripture tells you that you will cry uh, or even that you are already in mourning, but it does not tell you get out of your good mood and get into a bad one. And so I'm not going to tell you that either. I'm simply going to say it's an inevitable part of life. And when it comes, embrace it. Beautiful things can happen there. Which leads to the second framing idea. The tears that occur in the Bible are of a different kind. Mourning or tears in the Bible, at least the one from the saints, do not come from frustration or anger or disappointment or self-pity. They come from a crucible. They come from the tension between two things that are pulling our souls apart. Tears from the saints are more of a lament than they are in emotional default. The saints of the Bible weep because they must, because they want to, not because they can't help it. Lament is a decision. And what they lament is not that they are losing their nation. They lament that they are forgetting their God. It has spiritual roots to it. It comes from the soul. It does not come from the emotions, though it touches them. It is not stimulated by things outside. It is stimulated by the posture and the disposition of the person themselves. Are you still with me? That's a lot of words, which leads to the third framing idea. If we can find this place, there is a joy inside of tears. That is like no other joy. 
In the fellowship of suffering, two people find each other through their tears. And the bond that they form with one another in those tears is like no other bond in the world. Happy is the person who has found them and found a fellowship in them. To be pitied is the person who avoids them. Maybe I need to remind us, church, that we come from a legacy of mourning. Sarah is mourning into her 90s because in her words, the Lord has kept me from having a child. That's not a journal entry. That's something you say from the soul. And you don't say it off the cuff. You say it after years of waiting and hoping and dreaming and then quitting. That's when you say it. Jacob wrestles with God, seeking a blessing. Instead, he receives a wound and he walks with a limp for the rest of his life. The children of Israel groan in their slavery, crying out to God, and he hears them. Hannah weeps at the altar because she cannot have a son. Rachel weeps for her children, the children of Israel, who are no more, for they are captive to the Babylonians in exile. We have a book in the Old Testament called Lamentations containing five dark poems describing in vivid detail what the poet sees when he looks over the city he loved, now ruined because of the Babylonians. The smoke still rises and he writes, and he writes in vivid visceral terms. Our history rises from tears. This morning, I want to retell how the prophets and Jesus have picked up that legacy and carried it forward. The psalmist says, tears have been my food day and night as I pour out my soul. The prophet Jeremiah said, oh, that my eyes were a fountain of tears. Ezekiel said, lament and mourn for the slain of my people. Joel said, wake up you drunkards and let the priests weep between the portico and the altar. The prophet Micah said he went around naked, weeping and wailing his words for the incurable wound of my people. The prophet Amos said, we drink wine by the pitcher, but we cannot grieve over the ruins of our cities. What struck me as I read through the prophets again is how much of their language 
language is rooted in mourning. See, you'll miss this because the verbs that they use and the images that they use are so visceral and they're so striking. And you're tempted to think that one could only say those words from a disposition of anger. But there is another disposition, mostly foreign to us, that could also say things like that. And it's the disposition of sadness and mourning. Jesus himself picks up the spirit of the prophets coming into Jerusalem, sees the city, and weeps uncontrollably over the condition of the city. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, he says, you who stoned the prophets, if you only would have known what would bring you peace. But now it is hid from your eyes. And then Jesus tells us, his disciples in John chapter 16, that we too will weep while the world rejoices, but our weeping will turn to joy. And it had me wondering if Jesus was right. Not that our mourning wouldn't turn to joy, but if we'd lost the capacity to weep in the first place. What I hear in the public, and even from my own mouth, is the rhetoric of prophets without the tears. Prophets are not known by their condemnation. They are known by their tears. And I started to wonder if we've lost the capacity to mourn for things we want but cannot have. Tears and anger are both secondary emotions. And I wonder if we've decided that tears are no longer useful to us. And so we've defaulted as a nation and even as a church to a disposition of anger, threat, retaliation, rebuke, blame, accusation I um, I feel maybe I'm wrong in the country I feel that we have come through a season of just rage and now three or four years into that season, we're deciding that's not accomplishing anything either. And so we've stepped back almost into a posture of indifference, which is like, I really can't, that, that, I can't do anything about that. There's way over my head. What? And so we just disengage from problems that we cannot fix as though fixing a problem was the only thing Jesus ever did, and I think we have that wrong. 
to prove it, I offer John chapter 11. Now I'll retell the story. This time when I read John chapter 11, I noticed that the chapter begins with an emphasis on Mary. Lazarus has two sisters, not one, but John is careful at the beginning of this chapter to focus on Mary. It's like he's saying, Steve, pay attention to Mary. If you watch what happens to her, you'll see the key of the story here. You're spending too much time on the raising and too much time on Lazarus. Focus on Mary. It's the same one who poured the perfume on his feet. Now, Mary has a sister named Martha. And Mary and Martha are two very different creatures. Martha is more inclined toward action, response, problem solving. She is biased towards some kind of solution. Mary, on the other hand, is quiet. She's reflective. She's contemplative. We know this from Luke chapter 10, when Jesus goes into the house of Martha and Mary. And when he arrives, Martha jumps up and runs into the kitchen and starts making the meal. Mary kneels down at Jesus' feet and just sits in silence. Martha is upset. She shouts from the kitchen, make my sister get up and help with the food. And Jesus says, Martha, Martha, you are upset and worried about many things. Only one thing is necessary now. And your sister Mary has found it. So there's... Two sisters with two different responses. One is bent toward solutions and the other is bent toward quiet reflection. The story in John 11 brings the two of them together. They have a brother named Lazarus who's died. Jesus is about 10, 12 miles away. He gets word that Lazarus is sick and instead of getting up and running the 10 to 12 miles so he can make a pastoral call, Jesus, Pastor Jesus, waits two days. This is great. Or not. On the way there, Jesus gets word that Lazarus has died. Before he enters the village of Bethany, Martha hears that he is coming, given to action. She jumps up, runs out of the village, and meets him while he's still on his way. And she says, Lord, if you'd have been here, my brother would not have died. Nevertheless, I know that God will give you whatever you ask for. Do you hear the bias toward action? Lord, you blew it. But there's still time. God will give you anything you want. You feel it. Jesus says, Martha, your brother will rise again. 
Martha says, oh, I know he will rise in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus says, Martha, I am the resurrection. (laughs) Resurrection is not an event. Resurrection is a person and I am he. Anyone who is attached to me will not be resurrected. They're already rising. They're not waiting to live. They're already living, Martha. Do you believe this? Watch the avoidance. I believe you are the son of God, the one who was to come into the world. Martha, answer the question. Martha turns and runs back to the house. Mary hasn't left it, still sitting in the house, surrounded by friends who are mourning with her. She runs into the house and says to Mary, the teacher is here and he's looking for you. Mary gets up, quietly dismisses herself and leaves the house and just outside of it, she finds him. And when she finds him, she falls down at his feet and says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. It's the same sentence Martha said, only from two different postures. After she says it, Mary says nothing else. She just continues to weep. Now look at the text. In verse 34, when Jesus looks into her eyes and sees that she is weeping and the friends around her are weeping, he is greatly troubled in spirit. That language, they tell me, is used to describe the sea or the ocean when a hurricane blows over it. There is something happening in Jesus' soul that is very disruptive. This one who is normally calm is looking at a woman in tears and his soul is deeply moved in a way that we don't think it was moved in a conversation with Martha. And when he sees it, he gets only one sentence out. Where have you laid him? Mary says, Come on, I'll show you. And Jesus lost it. A lot of people wonder why Jesus wept. I'm more interested in when. He wept when he saw her weeping. Two women. Both ask the same question. One of them runs toward a solution. What do we do now? 
the other one just sits in the moment. Jesus weeps with the other one. When the crowd sees it, they are split in half. Half of the crowd look at Jesus and they say, my goodness, look how much he loved him. And the other half say, if he cured the sick, he could have kept this man from dying. Half of the crowd, like Mary, sits down in the sorrow. The other half, like Martha, run for a solution. There is a time for problem-solving, church. There's a time for getting our strategies together and addressing a problem that has come up. But that time is considerably later than the time we usually act. Most of us are biased like Martha for quick solutions. And if we can't solve the problem, our default is to disengage. And this morning, I think we as a nation, certainly we as a church, and maybe some of you as people, families or individuals, have been stung in the last few years by acts of injustice or rejection or threat or persecution or fear or frustration or profound loss. And I think we as a church or as families have just sort of held it down because we couldn't fix it. And if you can't fix it, then why take it on? I think we as religious people have been slow to weep Because the first to weep is the last to fight. And the last person to fight, that is the last person to throw the first punch, always loses. And we've been taught to respond with invectives. And our conversations quickly degenerate into places that were unthinkable a few years ago. And it might just rise from an inability to mourn. Here's what I think this means. It means that there are people here that live in that space and your tendency, as I say, is to run off and fix those things It means that there is a space after the death and right before the miracle you hope for. There is a space right in there that can last a long time. And when you can't get out of it, you have to just sit down in it, unfair as it is. 
And while you're in it, talk to God. Don't talk about him. You may talk to your counselors and you may talk to your friends, but dear church, not until you have talked to God himself. Our tendency has been to run off to people we can see and ignore someone we cannot see, hoping that maybe somewhere out there, there's a silver bullet. There isn't one. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Jesus is not telling us if we mourn, he will comfort us. This is not a prescription. This is a description. Jesus is saying there is a form of blessing that happens while you mourn. Blessing is a quality that the mournful already have. So if mourning seems to you to be something distasteful, something you want to get over as fast as you can, it's only because you don't yet know the meaning of blessed. You know what it is to mourn, enough to know that you want nothing to do with it. But Jesus is saying, if you would just embrace it and stay in it, in the fellowship of other good souls, there would be be a bond, a joining between you that is like none other. When you're in that space, talking to God, remember, whatever is wrong, you have nothing to teach him. You have nothing to teach him about this. The one you're talking to himself said, my God, why have you forsaken me? And a moment later said, Father, into your hands. I commend my spirit. There's the crucible. Father, why have you abandoned me? Father, I give you my spirit. Haggai said, the Lord has torn us in pieces, but he will heal us. A.W. Tozer said, the only refuge from God is in God. And therein lies your crucible. There are also others around you who live with a heaviness every day. And they have learned to hold it down. Church, Notice them. 
listen to them. Some of them are leaking passion and they don't know it. And if there's time, no, there's time. Sit with them and listen. Joseph Bailey writes, I was sitting torn by my grief. Someone came and talked to me of God's dealings, of why it happened, of hope beyond the grave. He talked constantly. He said things I knew were true. I was unmoved, except to wish he'd go away. He finally did. Another came and sat beside me. He didn't talk. He didn't ask leading questions. He just sat there for an hour or more, listened when I said something, answered briefly, prayed simply, left. I was moved. I was comforted. I hated to see him go. Bailey writes, we should not force our will on the grieving, even when we think we know best. Would you bow your heads with me for a moment? I must tell you this morning, before we gathered my prayer, is that I would help some of us find that place in us in the past maybe that we have too quickly moved past. My prayer was that God would help you find it and that God would meet you in it. That you would find there not a magician or a miracle worker but a man of sorrows, acquainted, well acquainted with grief. Someone who badly wants what he cannot have yet. Jesus. find us. My other prayer is that the rest of us surrounded as we are every day with friends who say almost nothing of it but carry within them a deep-seated longing. Something unfulfilled. A loss or rejection. A failure and they've lived with it a while. It's a dream and a hope and ambition and then suddenly a letting go. And my prayer is that as God finds us in our grief, we would find them in theirs. In our sorrow, bring a fellowship of joy 
Not joy beyond the sorrow, joy when the sorrow is over, but joy in the midst of it. Put on us now in our ashes a crown of joy now in this place. And for those that we work with and live with, we ask the same. Let us reflect you beautifully there. In the name of Christ, we pray. <laughs>